morning. I'm reading from Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or in labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Good to have you guys with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. You guys doing well? Outstanding. I want to welcome those that are on YouTube Live right now and those that will be watching throughout the day today and throughout this week. Rejoice in the Lord Always is our current teaching series. We're working our way through the, the letter of Philippians, and we're coming now to the title of this weekend's message is Joy in Stuck Points. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Philippians chapter 2. We're looking at verses 12 through 18. Now, let me define what stuck points are. They're right there on the top of your, your notes, and uh, kind of a definition of what we mean by this is that stuck points are those chronic hurts, habits, and hang-ups that won't go away, but only seem to get worse through the years. And in fact, what I've found in my own life as I get older, if I don't deal with those stuck points, they deal with me. And they progressively get worse. So those of you that are young, you want to deal with your stuff right now, okay? Because they progressively get worse in your life. Now, when God reveals those stuck points to us, when he convicts us of these stuck points, he doesn't do that to shame us. He does that to, to satisfy us and to set us free. He's wanting to draw us closer to him, not to drive us away from him. And so anytime that God convicts you, it's because he loves you and he's drawing you closer to his heart so that you can experience the freedom that only he can give you. Now, as I said last weekend, I was going to list off some of my personal stuck points. And so let me do that. Um, I, I can passively let negative thoughts dominate my mind and therefore affect my mood I can tend to be slow to listen, quick to speak, and quick to get angry. I can be so task-oriented that I neglect and offend the relationships of those involved. You were agreeing with, with me that you have that too. Or, or were you pointing to me when you said that? Because it's accurate as it relates to me, so that's good. I can tend to be a perfectionist and a workaholic in an effort to justify my existence. So I work for my justification rather than from my ju justification in Christ. 
And I, I battle with that. I can tend to be too black and white when it comes to people and circumstances. You guys know what that means? That they're all good or all bad. No in between. I can tend to be a people pleaser who is all about love without any truth until I am pushed over the edge and become all truth and no love. I can tend to be so out of touch with my own emotions that I am surprised when I find myself overreacting to people, things, and circumstances. Kind of like, where did that come from? Well, it was down inside of you that you continued to stockpile. I can tend to be an escalator in conflict rather than a de-escalator. What I mean by that is that I have the wonderful ability to make a bad situation worse by my response. Anybody relate to that one? Yeah, no doubt. And so those are some, just some of my stuck points. Let me now share with you my wife's stuck points. As I promised, her list is much longer than mine. And it's probably going to take most of the service to just get through her list. And so uh, I'm just, I'm kidding. Actually, she has a, a much shorter list than mine. And she told me to say that. And, uh, and, and so let's take a look at this. What, uh, in our text, he gives us really six uh, things that we need to do to get through these stuck points, these hurts, habits, and hang-ups. It's really about sanctification, so how to get through stuck points. Here's the first one. It's on your notes. First fill in the blank. Eliminate pretense. That's based on verse 12a. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Why would he say that? Because our tendency is sometimes when when the big gun is around, you know, we tend to be very obedient, but he's saying, even more so, now that I'm not with you, should you be obeying? And I think he's making a point here that who you are when no one is watching is who you really are. So when, when the guard is down, eventually the guard does come down, the true you comes out. That's, that's why it's called a honeymoon period for couples, You understand what I'm saying? And then eventually the true you comes out after the honeymoon. That's all pretense, okay? And and then at the end of the honeymoon, when it's all over, guard comes down, true you comes out. And um, anytime there is any kind of disparity between your private life and public life is evidence of pretense. And I was really, really convicted by this a number of years ago when I was working on the fire department. The Holy Spirit began to convict me over the fact that I treated my coworkers better than my own family members and my wife. And what the Holy Spirit spoke to me at that time was that uh, he said that that's all pretense. You're not as nice of a person as, as you think you are. They might think you're a nice person, but look how you treat your family. Look how you treat your wife. And that was, that was conviction, not to shame me, but to draw me in, to, to set me free, to satisfy me in Christ. And so it revealed that, uh, that pretense in my own life. Listen to what it says in Matthew 23, 28. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. That's Jesus to the Pharisees. So you look really good on the outside in your public life, but in your private life, it's a different story. 
So you've got to eliminate that pretense. You've got to begin to be honest about your life. And so this is really a, this hypocrisy or pretense is a form of hiding. Hiding is a curse and it's motivated by shame. It goes all the way back to the, the Garden of Eden. Remember when Adam and Eve in Genesis 2, 24 and 25, it said that they were both naked and unashamed. Just complete authenticity and honesty. And then in Genesis chapter 3, when they sinned, what happened immediately? They sewed up fig leaves to hide themselves from one another, and then they hid from God. Hiding is a curse. It's motivated by shame. And listen to me, there is no healing in hiding. The more skillful we are in our impression management, that is hiding, the more we are trapped in our true aloneness and sin. So you can only be loved and healed, that's what we all want, you can only be loved and healed to the extent that you are known by others, to the extent that you are, you get rid of the pretense, you eliminate the pretense in your life and your book, your life is an open, open book. Now since we have the assurance of God's love no matter what, we don't have to pretend to be more than what we are because our identity is now in him. He loves us. He treasures us. And so we can rest in that. Therefore, it gives us the ability by his grace to eliminate the pretense. And so we can be authentic with all and have deep disclosure with a few trusted friends. So let's talk about this. So when I, when I say eliminate pretense, I'm talking about being an authentic person. So if you're going to overcome your hurts, habits, and hang-ups, if you're going to get through those stuck points... You gotta be an authentic person. Here's what it means, it's on your notes, I give you three characteristics here, or three statements that help us to understand this, and this is evidence that you're eliminating pretense. Here's the first one, an authentic person is brave enough to articulate their weaknesses and strengths. So they're self-aware. So if I were to come to you and ask you, what are, what are some of the things that God is working on you about and in? And, and, and. You gotta be able to name those. If you're totally clueless, then I would wonder, you're not very self-aware, first of all. And secondly, are you truly walking in union and communion with Jesus Christ? Because believe me, if you are, he will reveal those stuck points in your life. And so, are you aware, are you self-aware that you know your weaknesses and your strengths? Here's the next one. An authentic person is humble and teachable when someone points out a weakness. So how do you respond to uh, criticism? This person will show a willingness to learn from their mistakes. Proverbs 13, 18, poverty and disgrace come to him who ignores instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is honored. Here's the third characteristic of an authentic person. They won't play the victim, but take ownership for their personal growth. So the tendency for all of us is that when someone criticizes us, is it's easy for us to fall into this pity party. And, um, and, and a healthy person will not do that. They'll just, they'll honestly look at themselves. And they'll say, hey, yeah, you know what? There are some things in my life that I need to, I need to grow in. Thank God for his grace. And he's continuing to work in my life. And, and I'm, I'm so thankful for that. Now, I need to talk about uh, something here that is really important. Because in uh, healthy relationships, there will be this mutual giving and receiving of love and truth. 
And let's just say that you're in a relationship where you're expressing love and truth, and so you confront the other person with some truth in love. And how many know what gaslighting is? Anybody know what gaslighting is? Not the literal gaslighting. It's, it, I'm talking about something has a, that has to do with relationships. Here's what gaslighting is. Gaslighting is turning the table on the one who points out your weakness and making them into the perpetrator and causing them to question reality. So it's, it's, it's a bit crazy-making. I've been in relationships before. The any time I would confront them, they would, they would turn the table on me and make it my problem, my fault. The, the way they were was because of me. And that's turning the table. Rather than taking personal responsibility, it's a way of spinning it back on, on them. Well, I wouldn't be this way if it wasn't for you. And then they go through the list of things that's wrong with you. That's called gaslighting. It's a, it's a form of manipulation and control. And you need to be aware of that. So you might even have to start off by confronting them over their, their gaslighting or their response when you do uh, criticize them. But healthy relationships will work through this. So, so this is what an authentic person looks like. Now, so first of all, eliminate pretense. Here's the second one, motivate your heart. Motivate your heart. That's in verse 12b. He says, work out your own salvation. Now, here's the motivation, with fear and trembling. With fear and trembling. Now, you've heard me probably say this many times before, and so I'll I'll explain it to you. Uh, There's a major difference between a morally restrained will and a supernaturally transformed heart. How many have ever heard me say that? Okay, most of you, many of you. So a morally restrained will. So the Christian life is not a morally restrained will, but a supernaturally transformed heart. A morally restrained will is, uh, is morality or virtuous behavior based on intr- extrinsic, extrinsic motivation such as fear and pride. Not the fear that he's talking about here, but this fear of God's gonna torture me if I don't do what's right. I'm, I've gotta get this right, God's gonna get me. And then the pride would be um, very self-righteous, sanctimonious, holier than thou. I don't wanna be like all those losers because I'm a different person. So that's extrinsic motivation. That's a morally restrained will. And, and change, that kind of change does not last. It only lasts as long as you have that extrinsic motivation. You, as long as you got the gun to your head, you're going to behave well. As long as people are watching, you're going to behave well because of fear, what will people think, and then pride. I want to look great in front of these people. That's wrong motivation for life change. So you can be a really, really, really moral, virtuous person and do it for all the wrong reasons. And... uh, So a morally restrained will, so the Christian life is not a morally restrained will, but a supernaturally transformed heart, a heart that is smitten by the beauty and the glory of who Christ is and what he's done for us. It's overwhelming. That is what transforms our our life, and that's where we will be able to continue to live out. It's true transformation. And so uh, this... This fear that I was talking about here, this morally restrained will is extrinsically motivated by fear, is more of a servile uh, fear a prisoner ha- has for, a, for his torture. That's not the kind of fear that he's talking about here. 
So let's define these words, fear and trembling. That should be the motivation for our life change. So fear, the Greek word is phobos, where we get our word phobia. And it, it means fear, dread, terror. The word trembling, the Greek word is tromos, where we get our word trauma. And a, a trembling or a quaking with fear. So it says work out your Work out your own salvation with phobias and traumas. That sounds weird, doesn't it? That's, you need to understand what those words mean. In fact, I looked it up in the Thayer's lexicon. This is what it said. Fear and trembling is the anxiety of one who distrusts his ability completely to meet all the requirements, but religiously does his utmost to fulfill his duty. So, so this kind of fear here is, is of a son to a father. He loves his father and doesn't want to do anything to offend him or let him down. That's the kind of fear that it's talking about here. And so fear and trembling means that, that you don't see sin as breaking some arbitrary rules, but you see it as breaking the very heart of God. You see, uh, fear and trembling means that sin is a dagger to the heart of God. You see that as, as sin. And sin is a trampling on God's perfect love and infinite wisdom. Now, th- now think about this. God, knowing our strengths and weaknesses, knowing how he created us, he gave us, I've often called the owner's manual, his word, the Bible, to direct our lives. He, he wants us to flourish in life, and therefore he gave us his word. And when we think we're smarter than him and we disobey him, we are trampling on his love and wisdom because his word came to us out of his perfect love and infinite wisdom, knowing exactly what we need to do and how to live in every dimension of our lives. And so when we turn our back on him and we believe the lie that we will be happier by disobeying God, we're duped. That's crazy. That's insanity. And so all sin is a trampling on the love and wisdom of God. Psalm 51.4, part of David's repentant psalm, he said this. Remember after he committed adultery and murder and betrayal of this whole nation that he was leading as king? And he said, against you, you alone have I sinned to God. Well, you're thinking, alone? Yeah, he understood that for him to commit adultery and murder and betrayal was based on the fact that he first had to trample on the love and wisdom of his creator, of his God, of his savior. He understood that. And so the motivation of life change, this fear and trembling, is really just a heart captivated by, by Christ. 2 Corinthians five fourteen through 15, for Christ's love compels us, it drives us, it pushes us. We can't help but want to live for his glory and honor when we understand all that he's done for us. Because we're convinced, as it says here, one has died for all. He has died for us, Christ. So fear and trembling... We could add to that, means you don't want to offend the one you supremely love. You don't want to violate your testimony to an unbelieving world. You don't want to negate your effective ministry to the church. 
all in honor of, of God. Now, Psalm 112, 1, it's one of the cross-references I put on your notes. Listen to what it says here. Praise the Lord, exclamation mark. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. You know what the word blessed means? Total fulfillment, complete well-being. It means happy, unlike you could ever experience. Blessed is the man. Happy is the man who fears the Lord. So anytime you think about fearing the Lord, it's a very positive thing. It's a very good thing. It's about, it's about being happy in God. Total fulfillment, complete well-being. But he doesn't stop there. And then he goes on. So blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. So fear of the Lord would be to greatly delight in the commandments of God. And that's the motivation, your love for God that should transform you. The fear and trembling. Man, I don't want to do anything that would offend him or trample on his love and wisdom. I want to honor him in my life. So eliminate pretense, motivate your heart, activate your faith. That's your third one there on your notes. So he says, work out your own salvation. So this is a personal thing that we need to do. But notice, he doesn't say, work for your salvation. Because you can't work for your salvation, okay? And this is what separates Christianity from every major cult and religion in our world today. Every other major cult and religion of our world today is a works righteousness. Christianity is a grace. It's a grace righteousness. It's, it's that we have an imputed righteousness. It's given to us. Salvation is a gift. Every other major cult and religion, salvation is a work you have to do these things. They have a list of code of ethics or a number of things. And if you do that, then you're in. All you need is need in the Christian life and to recognize that I can't do this on my own. I can't save myself. I see my inability to earn or achieve salvation, but I receive it as a free gift from God. And it's amazing. That's, that's the major difference between the two. And so, so we have that, that free gift from God. So work out your salvation. You have salvation by grace through faith in him. Now work it out. Now what does that mean? Apply the truth of who God is, what he's done for you, and who you are in light of that to every area of your life. Why? Verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So what you see in that verse is you got your part and then God's part. And with God's part, he says, for it, God who works in you, and there's two things that God is doing in you. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I can guarantee you this is what he's doing. He's giving you the desire both to will, that's desire, and to work. That's the ability to do what he's asked you to do, to obey him. And um, so let's just talk a minute about what hurts, habits, and hangups are. <clears throat> so what is a hurt anyway? You guys know what that is. A hurt is uh, an offense. It's an unresolved or unhealed broken heart. And it just lingers because we haven't responded to it appropriately and it lingers, it's there in our life. And, and then a habit would be a coping mechanism that enslaves. In our day and time, we try to cope with life and the ways that we do it sometimes is that we drink alcohol or do drugs or download porn or uh, go shopping. Shopping can be one of those things or any number of things. 
binge on Netflix. That would be a, a kind of a coping mechanism. And so there's a number of things like that. But what they do is that they eventually enslave us because we're using them in replacement of our Savior. We should be going to our Savior, but, in, but what happens is that we go in that direction, and then it, before long it begins to enslave us, and that's, it becomes a habit, and it dominates our life. And then hang-ups are dysfunctional homing instincts. So you see, uh, you were raised and nurtured in your home with certain roles, and unspoken rules and ways of relating. And sometimes you don't realize that maybe some of that was dysfunctional in your life until you get out on your own and you go, you begin to see normal people (laughs) or healthy people, or you read God's word and you go, whoa, there was some dysfunction in my upbringing. And so what happens in our life is that we tend to uh, we always tend to, uh, re- we always return to that which is most familiar to us, even if it's dysfunctional. That's why a, a, a guy or a gal can leave home and they tend to always hook up with, with abusive people because there was abuse in their home and so that's just familiar to them. We always return to that which is most familiar to us, even if it's dysfunctional. It's almost kind of like written in, in our heart and who we are, and they become hang-ups in our life that we have to overcome. And so, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So that's beginning to big for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we've got to begin to take what Christ, who Christ is, what he's done for us, who I am in light of that, and apply it to the specific areas of my hurts, habits, and hang-ups. And so you've got to be self-aware. You've got to realize, man, this is a hurt that I haven't gotten over. I've been carrying this for years, and it's toxic, and it's poisoning my life, and I'm becoming more and more bitter. So you've got to begin to take God's word and apply it specifically to that, and God will bring freedom to your life. Now, when it comes to activate your faith, there's two different ways of, uh, of going about this, and I've seen this in the Christian community, and that is there's the quietist approach, and then there's the pietist approach. That might sound a little crazy, foreign words there, but quietist means quiet. Quietist approach is all God. It's all on God to change me. It's an overemphasis of divine sovereignty. It would be kind of that, that statement where it says, let go and let God So it's all on God to change me. I'm just going to show up and he will zap me and he will change me. That's the quietist approach. But then there's the pietist approach. You're familiar with the word piety. It's just uh, spiritual disciplines. And this approach is all me. It's an overemphasis of human responsibility. And it's an all me approach leads to pride and despair. So if it's all on you, to get your act together, to overcome the hurts, habits, and hang-ups, to get through those stuck points, that if you start beginning to see some progress, you're going to be filled with pride and wonder why others can't do what you've accomplished. But then when you blow it, which you will, then you go right down into despair. And it's a very self-righteousness approach to your hurts, habits, and hang-ups. And uh, so it's all me approach leads to pride and despair. It's all God approach leads to laziness and lack of character and immaturity. You're not going to grow. So Paul is telling us that getting beyond stuck points requires all of God and all of you. 
And, and so that you've got divine sovereignty, human responsibility, like two pedals on a bike. And you see this throughout Scripture. God is working in you. Listen to me. If you're a believer in Christ, God is working in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. He gives you the desires and he gives you the ability, but you've got to work it out. That's your job. And work it out into the specific areas of your life, every area of your life, whatever you're struggling with. Begin to apply who Christ is, what he's done for you, who you are in light of that, specifically to where your heart is most restless or struggling or having difficulty. Now, let me talk a little bit about activating your faith, what that means, because there's a lot of weird definitions of faith in our culture today, in our Christian, in the broader church community. Faith is not a feeling, okay? And so just because you can't sense God's presence doesn't mean that he's not there. He's already told us that he will never leave us or forsake us, Hebrews 13, 5, and 6. So it's not based on your feelings, okay? You cool with that? It's based on the fact of God's word, and the blood of our Savior, Jesus. And so faith is not a feeling, and it's not a force. You know when that storm was kind of blowing through the valley the, uh, a couple days ago? I was hoping, I was praying that I'd get rain, that we would get rain. Just rain in my backyard, please, God. So I went out in the backyard and said, rain. Rain now. And it didn't work. There's actually, uh, there's, there's groups out there that would actually teach that faith is a force and your words are a container of that force. And if you have enough faith, you can speak and things will happen. That's not faith. That's not what the Bible actually says. So faith is not a feeling, it's not a force. And by the way, it's not a formula. It's also taught oftentimes that if you do all the right things, then God owes you. God doesn't owe us anything He doesn't owe us a thing. It's not a feeling. It's not a force. It's not a formula. Listen to me. Listen. Faith is fellowship, intimacy with God. It's knowing him. It's walking with him. So if you're going to get over your hurts, habits, and hang-ups, it's it's from intimacy with him, getting to know him, enjoying his love, experiencing all that he is for you in Christ Jesus. There's nothing quite like that. Grow in your relationship with him. And so it's not the size of your faith, because I've heard people say, well, you just don't have enough faith. Well, the problem isn't the size of your faith. It's really the object of your faith is what matters most. And believe me, if you get to know the object of your faith, your faith will soar. Oftentimes it's because we really don't know him. That's why I've always loved uh, Psalm 9, 9 and 10. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Those who know his name. Name means character. Those who know his name will trust in him. So trust comes out of knowing God. You can't help but trust him the more you get to know him. So, so uh, those who know his name will trust in him because, listen, he has never forsaken those who seek him. That's beautiful. That's faith. I'm going to continue to seek him no matter what. I'm going to get through these these stuck points. God's with me. He's working in my life. He loves me. And so you begin to activate your faith. So eliminate pretense. Motivate your heart. Activate your faith. Evaluate your progress. 
Evaluate your progress. Now, we can evaluate our progress through the Ten Commandments, Sermon on the Mount, Fruit of the Holy Spirit, the Great Commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself. But notice what uh, Paul uses here to evaluate uh, our progress. He says in verse 14, do all things without grumbling and disputing. (laughs) Oh, I love that. I'm not sure I really like that at all. Grumbling and disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So, so he's wanting us to do all things without grumbling and disputing. All things. So that we can be blameless, innocent, without blemish. Blameless, innocent, without blemish does not mean you're perfect. That's not perfectionism. That means that when you do blow it, you will blow it. You get back up and you keep running back into his arms because he loves you and he's wanting to transform your life. So that's what that means, that you're self-aware and you understand your weaknesses and you keep bringing your weaknesses to him as he continues to transform you. But he ultimately wants us to shine his lights in the the world. So let me define the word grumbling. Grumbling, the Greek means murmur, murmuring, muttering, a secret debate or displeasure. Disputing, the Greek uh, word means doubting, arguing, questioning what is true. Now, this is what you need to know, is that there is a righteous way to complain and there is an unrighteous way to complain. Huh? Yeah, there is. And so it is the difference between complaining to God versus complaining about God. And, and so unrighteous complaining declares that God is not sufficiently loving, wise, powerful, or competent. Otherwise, he would treat us better or run the universe more effectively. It is, it is sinful because it is accusing God of wrongdoing. Grumbling, this kind of grumbling, this unrighteous complaining is putting yourself in God's place. But the righteous complaining doesn't impugn God with wrong. It is the honest struggle, groaning, and grief of living in the reality of a fallen and futile world and taking those struggles and groanings and griefs to God. Now, listen to what it says in Romans 8, 22 through 23. Not only is all of creation growing, uh, groaning, <clears throat> but we are groaning inwardly awaiting Christ's return. Verse 26, it says, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now, there's, a, there's one book in the Bible that helps us I mean, they all help us in this area, but there's one specifically that kind of shows us how to uh, do more complaining and disputing appropriately in a righteous way. Anybody know what that book of the Bible is? It's the biggest book in the Bible. Anybody? The book of Psalms, 150 chapters. And in the book of Psalms, are, there are prayers that God chose to teach us on how to express ourselves to him. And one-third of these Psalms are laments. So grumblings, complainings, all of that. And, and let me give you an example. Psalm 137 is about sorrow 
expressing sorrow to God. Psalm 140 is anger. Psalm 69 is fear. Psalm 102 is confusion. It's about confusion. Psalm 22 is desolation. Psalm 74 is disappointment. Psalm 88 is about depression. And in fact, what's fascinating about Psalm 88, it doesn't typically, it doesn't end like most psalms where they kind of end on a high note where the the psalmist has kind of processed his emotions and now he's ending with a a bit of celebration or a positive hope or whatever. That, That one actually ends with this. Darkness is my closest friend. When you read that, you go, whoa. I don't think this guy resolved the issues here that's at hand. And, I, and it's in the Bible because God ordained that it would be in the Bible to remind us that there are going to be issues that you're not going to be able to resolve for a time and you've got to be okay with that. You've got to continue to persevere. You've got to continue to cling to God. You've got to continue to look to him. And you're going to feel like darkness is my closest friend. I don't even know where God is, but I'm going to continue to pour my heart out to him. And allow him to to minister to me. So knowing your emotions, so not only do you need to know your your weaknesses, your hurts, habits, but you gotta understand your emotions behind all of that. So knowing your emotions and knowing how to express them is a very important part of being a Christian. And so so this is the question you need to ask yourself as you're kind of navigating through this and kind of working through those stuck points, is what emotions are you feeling? When you look at your grumbling and, and disputing, what is, what is that exactly? What is it? You're mad, sad, glad, whatever. What's you afraid? And then you want to ask the question here, what are the circumstances surrounding your emotions? What's, what's driving that? Now, here's what's interesting about emotions. I wrote this on a card a number of years ago, and it was helpful for me to kind of Keep reminding me of this. Our emotions reveal the things that are most important to us. And so when you are happy, it's because you possess something you love. When you're anxious, it's because something you love is at risk. It's being threatened. When you are depressed, something you love has been lost. And when you are angry, something you love has been stolen or kept kept from you. And, uh, and so you've got to be in touch with those emotions. What are we, how are we to, to manage those emotions? Well, the traditional culture would say, just stuff your feelings. Just ignore them, move on. Just do what you're told to do. The, uh, the modern culture says, live by your feelings. Express your feelings. But, but God says, no, bring your feelings to me and let me reorder them based on my love for you. So biblical culture says reorder your feelings by loving God with all of your heart and then you'll love everything else appropriately, keeping them in their proper place. See, here's the biggest problem of our life is disordered loves. We love good things too much. And when those good things are threatened, blocked, or lost, we have that emotional response, that inordinate emotional response, which reveals that we have overattached our heart to something that is created as opposed to the creator. And so that's why it just gives us, it's an indicator in our life that if we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, then everything else will be, uh, be below that and we will order our emotions appropriately and we will learn how to love what God loves and hate what God hates. 
So unrighteous complaining drives you away from God. Righteous complaining drives you deeper into God's love, wisdom, and power. And there's a difference. Now, let me just warn you here just um, before we move on. Beware when you are self-aware and you're looking at your emotions. Beware of the paralysis of analysis. Because you just be paralyzed just looking inward, looking inward, looking inward. Here's what we need to do. And I like this. This is from Robert Murray McShane, 1894. He says this, The heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah 17, 9. Learn much of the Lord Jesus. Now, this is what he says. Here's, here's the point. For every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. Did you hear that? So for every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. He is altogether lovely, such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace. And all for sinners, even the chief, live much in the smiles of God, bask in his beams, feel his all-seeing eyes settled on you in love and repose in his almighty arms. That's beautiful. Okay, yeah, we're struggling with the mess that we are, different areas of our life, but man, keep your eyes on Jesus. One, one look at you, 10 looks at him. That's a, that's a healthy way as you work through this. And the next point, so eliminate pretense, motivate your heart, activate your faith, evaluate your progress. So once again, grumbling and complaining, which way are you directing that? That's how you kind of work through that. And then saturate yourself biblically. Holding fast to the word of life. This is verse 16. Holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So holding fast means to have, to hold upon, or to apply. It's really uh, a good cross-reference for that would be Psalm 119.11. That was the, one of the memory verses of the, of the ladies that they were memorizing a, a verse every month. Anybody know what Psalm 119.11 is? Anybody want to yell it out to me? I have hid your word. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. I love that. I have stored it up. I have an arsenal. I've memorized it and meditated on it. And now I have this arsenal to be able to, to face all of my hurts, habits, and hangups, to face anything in my life. I have all that God is and what he's promised within my grasp, and I can use it when, when those hurts, habits, and hang-ups raise their ugly head, and I can come after them with the sword of God's word, with the word of life. The word of life means both the written word, Hebrews 4.12, and the living word, Christ. And he's basically saying, if you hold fast to the word of life, you will persevere to the end. And, uh, and so... So how do we do that? Well, this is how I do it. I actually, so that I do a lot of meditating and memorizing. So I actually do three by five cards or I'll take a screenshot of a verse and put it in my uh, pictures. I've got quite a number of uh, verses in my pictures. And, and so I'll take it with me throughout the day. I'll meditate on it, I'll think about it, I'll pray it. So for instance, in dealing with my hurts, Here's a verse, Ephesians 4, 31 through 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you alone with all malice. 
See, that's what happens when we don't deal with our hurts. That, that's what comes out of us. In verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So dealing with hurts is really about forgiveness. How about my habits? Well, John 6.35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So sin is what we do when we're not satisfied with God. So it's going back to God. Whatever habit, coping mechanism, beginning to come back to God to cope and deal with life. And eventually, over time, you'll be able to move that habit to the side. You won't be so dependent upon that because you're finding your satisfaction in him. Sin is what we do when we're not satisfied with God. And so you find your satisfaction in him. And then how about hang-ups? Well, 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. All things have become new. I have a whole, uh, I'm a whole new creation. In other words, God is working in my life to will and to act according to his good pleasure. And so I, I apply those verses to my life. And I understand that as I saturate my life biblically, I will have the arsenal ready to deal with the issues of my life. Listen to Psalm 1, 1 through 3. It says this, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly or stand in the way of the sinners or sit in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in God's word. And he meditates on it day and night. He will be like a tree planted by streams of water. He will bear fruit in season. His leaf will not wither. And whatever he does, he's going to prosper. And that all goes back to meditating on God's word, reflecting on it, thinking deeply about it, taking it with you. So eliminate pretense, motivate your heart, activate your faith, evaluate your progress, saturate yourself biblically, and then imitate godly models. And we're going to look at uh, one now and two next week. We're going to look at uh, Paul's life, and next week we'll look at Timothy and Epaphroditus. But listen to what uh, Paul says about his life. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So what is this drink offering? It was wine that was poured out over an animal sacrifice, an Old Testament animal sacrifice, which ultimately points to the ultimate sacrifice, which is Jesus. But they would pour the wine over that and it would immediately evaporate. And he's just saying, that's my life. I'm willing to pour out my life for your faith. I am so captivated by the beauty and the glory of Christ. I'm willing to give my life so that you can know the Savior that I know. That's what he's saying. Paul is saying, I am willing to sacrifice my life for the sake of, of your faith. Now remember, sacrifice is giving up something you love for something you love more. So I love my life, but not as much as I love you guys and you guys connecting with Christ. So I'm willing to risk my life for you. And I, I, let me just say this as we conclude our time here uh, this morning. Thank you, Desert Breeze Community Church. Desert Breeze is filled with people who sacrifice their time, their talents, their treasures, their finances consistently, uh, amazingly, so that we together can reach seekers and build up believers with the gospel of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So thank you. Thank you for your hard work. Thank you for your devotion. Thank you for your continued giving. Um, especially in this time and when we continue to build out our facility 
And thank you so much for that. Next weekend, as I said, we'll, we'll be talking about joy and sacrifice, Timothy and Epaphroditus. But here's what, sh- what motivates Paul and what should motivate us to be able to sacrifice our life. In fact, let me ask you this. Are you willing to sacrifice your time, your talent, your treasure for the sake of someone's faith, their eternity, your neighbors, your family members, your coworkers, you're willing to do anything so that they can know the love and the joy and the peace that you have. Here's what should motivate this, 1 John 3.16. I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with John 3.16. This is 1 John 3.16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. He laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. See, that's evidence that God is working in your life. Let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? So, Father God, every one of us struggles in so many different ways with hurts, habits, and hang-ups, and yet you promised us that the work you began in us, by grace, through faith in Christ, you would carry it on to completion. Help us to eliminate pretense by knowing that you love us no matter what. Motivate our hearts with your irresistible love. Teach us how to activate our faith by applying your word specifically to where our hearts are most restless. May we regularly evaluate our lives so that we can shine as lights in this dark world. Help us to be more disciplined in our saturating of our lives with your word. And may we be like the Apostle Paul who was willing to pour out his life like a drink offering for the faith of others. We pray these things in Jesus' glorious and beautiful name. And everyone said... Amen. Love you guys. God bless you.